It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
everybody. Uh, this is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour is uh, the author of a new book, a debut novel, in fact, uh, called um, "Wool Over Their The Wool Over Their Eyes," and it explores uh, the struggles a biracial woman faces finding love, family, and faith in the shadow of lies. And uh, again, I mentioned it's a, a debut novelist. Dion Martin is her name, and she joins me by phone. Hi, Dion. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thank you for having me. Um, let me let me ask about this. Uh, I, I was reading about uh, about your book, and it 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 says that it it is loosely based on your own life and experiences, and it makes me wonder. When you decided to write a book, was it because you wanted to tell a story or because you wanted to tell your story? Oh, that's a great question. I think it was probably a mix of both. Um, you know, I think just growing up, I was raised in a really conservative home and didn't have a whole lot of freedom, and so I read all the time. And so I think that sort of influenced, you know, my love of literature um, books really were an escape for me and just sort of, I don't know, I, I tell some people sometimes I think books have saved my life and I think just the, the ability or the the possibility of reading a story and being able to escape and almost just experience a whole other world, um, I just find it fascinating and so I've always been a really avid reader and so for me, um, as I went through high school and college, English just came naturally to me as far you know writing and I think it's just it's because I read so much well you studied um, English so, and then you studied yes. journalism and you work in communications yes. now but yes. there's something you said that that I, I wanted to go back and pick up on you said you mm-hmm. grew up in a in a pretty conservative home yes and yes and yet you grew up in New Orleans mm-hmm. and you're biracial and mm-hmm. nothing about that would make someone automatically assume that you grew up in a conservative home. Tell me a little more about that. <laughs> well, so oh, where to begin? My my mother um, is black, and my real father was Italian. And this is the sort of the real story and kind of the, the premise for for the book but you know the book is very loosely based on my real life like you said I just I let my imagination run wild and it's it's fairly it's pretty different from what really you know from reality but my mother met my dad um and she will she will tell you and she's told other people it was before she got saved and became a Christian and so it was a time in her life when she you know she explains it to me she was living in sin my real dad was married at the time and so I was basically conceived as an illegitimate child. And so his family knows nothing of my existence, even to this day. Um, And so she got saved. And so I was only two years old at the time, um, married my stepdad. And so from then on, they both became saved. And we grew up, you know, going to Pentecostal churches, um, some Southern Baptists. Uh, So I grew up in a very religious um, home with very little freedom uh, because of the kind of the religious uh, structure that we were raised under. 
Uh, let me ask you a couple of things about that. One, you know, when people think of New Orleans, they always think of the French Quarter. But where did mm. you live in New Orleans? And mm-hmm. and what was it like growing up in New Orleans? Because obviously yeah. you didn't grow up on Bourbon Street. Definitely not. Um, <laughs> my mother kept us away from that area. She called it Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so <laughs> I, I could, I, you know what? When you said that, I, it was—I I don't even know your mother, but I could almost hear her saying that. <laughs> yeah, we we did not spend really any time in the French Quarter growing up. Um, so I guess um, we actually we lived uptown in an area called Uptown. So I don't know if you're familiar with the city or not, but a little. Um, okay, it's. I mean, you could be in a white neighborhood one minute and walk two blocks and be in a black neighborhood. It's it's very. Um, but that's it's kind of how this. That's kind of true all over New Orleans, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, in, in some neighbors, I think some neighborhoods are more diverse than others. When I was growing up, um, I mean, there definitely are neighborhoods that are mostly and predominantly black, and really, New Orleans is a predominantly black city. So I was very much raised, you know, black family, black friends, you know, mostly black schools. Um, so for me growing up, it was very much my identity revolved around being black. I really rarely have ever thought about this other side of me, mainly because I wasn't raised, you know, with my biological father or with his family. Would... um and I am, I'm not even sure how to ask this, Dion, but how do you identify? <laughs> yeah, I identify as black. Um, and I, I think it's just, you know, because of how I grew up, I mean, I, I grew up only really in a black culture. Um, really the first time I think really I was exposed to what I, you know, could potentially call more of a white culture or environment was when I left and went away to school in Minnesota. That was culture shock for me. Yeah, I would think. So it was, definitely. Minnesota's I, and not, I know you're from Flint, Michigan, right? Yeah, so, Minnesota. Like, <laughs> I've, been, I've spent a lot of time in Minnesota, and it's nothing like Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> no, it was, it, it, was, it was definitely an adjustment just from a cultural perspective, the weather, the food. I mean, it was just completely different. But I, I wanted to get away from home. I didn't want to stay in New Orleans for school. Um, so, I mean, it was a good experience overall. It just was very different uh, in terms of the culture. And, you know, it, it kind of allowed me to learn about other cultures outside of my own, which I always appreciate. And then you went from Minnesota to Texas, which is mm-hmm. kind, of a, kind of another adjustment. Yeah, I think being in Texas felt a little bit more like being back home, though, just because it's the South. And, you know, I I chose Texas partly to be closer to Louisiana so I could drive home and, you know, still see my family more often. I mean, being in Minnesota, I only saw them a couple times a year. And so that was hard. Um, But UT at the time was one of the top-ranked journalism schools. Um, It was, you know, in the top 10. I'm not sure what it is now, but... Um, so my goal was to be in one of the top-rated journalism schools, get a master's, and kind of see where my career could go from there. And then you ended up going into uh, communications for Brinker? Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah, so right now I'm communications director uh, at Brinker International, and 
really I've only done communications for the last 21, almost 22 years, actually. Um, I mean, I will say when I went to grad school at UT and, you know, got my master's in journalism, my goal at the time was to write for a newspaper. Um, and so I had an internship in my last year of school. Actually, I had two. One was with Dell Computers and uh, Round Rock just outside of Austin. And then the other was with a magazine. Um, and I loved them both. But what I realized with the Dell internship and corporate communications is that I could earn a better living. And you know how journalism goes. I mean, it's, it's yeah. rough in yeah. terms of, of, you know, surviving <laughs> financially. I've seen um, people ask journalists when they're going to get a real job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe one day in retirement I can go back to it and just only write for a living. But, you know, it's tough to only learn a living as a writer or as a journalist. You know, you work your way up, of course, and I didn't want to be in a small town again. Um, so I thought, oh, I can use my writing skills and communication skills, you know, on the corporate side. So, yeah, I've been with Brinker International for six months. And, you know, before that, I've worked at agencies and USAA and San Antonio. Um, but pretty much this is all I've done for the last 22 years. More with debut novelist Dion Martin, straight ahead. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wanky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, 
community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with debut novelist Dion Martin, straight ahead. What made you decide it was time to write the great American novel? Well, it had always been a dream of mine. When I finished undergrad, um, I, I knew even then that I always wanted to write a novel, at least one. And I just think as I've gotten older... It, I felt more pressure to do it because I just thought, you know, I don't want to have any regrets in life. And so if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? And so I've spent the last six years trying to fit it in, which, you know, working full time, I have two daughters, you know, you try to have time to, you know, take care of yourself, work out, go to church. I mean, spend time with friends and family. There's just not enough time really ever, but <laughs> I just I said I have to do it. And so, you know, pretty much every Saturday and Sunday, for years, for six-ish years, I focused on, on writing this book. How were you able to, um, and, and I suppose this has something to do with the creative process, but how were you able to uh, come up with a story that, you know, didn't end up sounding like Dear Diary? I think because I added other characters to the novel. So when I think about my life and, and my biological dad, who I never knew, I also think about his wife and what would it, how would it affect her if she found out or if she knew that her husband of all these years had fathered this child out of wedlock, you know? And so I wanted to explore both sides of the story, which, you know, technically is mine. And then also hers. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I, and I just, you know, what could have happened? Because, you know, in real life, um, they don't, you know, know about me as I shared. But I wanted to explore, well, what could have happened or what could happen if they did find out? Is is the fact that you are biracial and the character in the book biracial, is that 
really significant to this story, or could it be any child born out of wedlock? Were there specific things that happened to you or that you experienced that you wanted to share through modeling this character after yourself? Yes, I would say it's significant because, I mean, there were certainly moments in, in, in chapters and in sections of the book where it, it did become more deeply personal um, for me. And I thought back to times, you know, growing up, how I felt not having my dad, like the moment, for example, when I found, found out that my stepdad was not my dad. Um, and then just being raised by a stepfather, you know, frankly, who didn't treat me like his daughter. I was very much treated like a stepdaughter. And he since apologized. But working through those emotions was really difficult. And I think, you know, as I wrote some of those sections, it certainly felt like I was writing from a place of pain. Um, but I think, too, as I've shared with people, that our pain also has a purpose. And so I think, you know, I, I went through that for some reason. Uh, it, it made me a stronger person, you know, I can certainly say. Um, so there are definitely um, areas within the novel where I pulled from my own personal experiences and feelings um, and I would say, too, even for for the other character, the wife, you know, I've had some experiences as well being divorced that I could also pull from just from a, you know, betrayal perspective. Sure. But I'm and, and I don't want to dwell on on this too much longer about the biracial nature of your character, you know, being modeled after you. But it sounds like you grew up just identifying as black in a black neighborhood and then you went to some place that was not a black neighborhood and mm -hmm. and functioned as a as a black person in a in a white area what would have been the reasons where the fact that you were biracial would have impacted you emotionally or or in everyday life do you understand what I mean by that? I'm not sure I'm asking it very well. Yeah, maybe. Could you reword it? I just want to make sure. Yeah, well, I, it just sounds like um, the fact that you were biracial, unless it was an issue for your stepfather, mm -hmm. um, really didn't seem to have the kind of um, impact if... And and this gets into some things that are very sensitive uh, for some people and very difficult for, for me to understand or talk about. But mm -hmm. there are cases where biracial people have had more white traits and, and would mm -hmm. pass for white. Um, it, it sounds like you were able to very comfortably pass for black and that being biracial didn't have to be an issue unless you or someone else made it one. I see. So it was an issue for my stepdad, um, and it wasn't something that I really realized until I got older. I was probably five when I kind of looked around and was sort of like, wait, I don't look like anybody in my family, <laughs> and people would ask. Like, at one point, we had someone come over, and he was like, are you adopted? And so I just remember asking my mother about it, and, and she sat me down and explained, your real dad you know, was Italian, and 
you know, you can't ever know him or his family. And she just, she told me this whole story. Um, and it was a lot to absorb. I think that my stepdad did treat me differently because I had lighter skin and also just because I wasn't his child. And I think that there, you know, unfortunately there's colorism within the black community, Indian communities. Um, and it's, it's a tough thing to deal with. Um, I never thought any more or less of myself because of the tone of my skin or because my skin was lighter than anybody else's in my family. But it was an issue for him, and it was very much a reminder, you know, that my mother had had this relationship with someone who wasn't black, and then here I am, the product of it. Um, so that was, that was definitely difficult um, being treated differently by him and then just going places and, you know, people sort of may point it out or it, it becomes a topic of discussion. Um, just feeling like you're different or other in your own family. Yeah, I would think that, that, that um, you know, not ever knowing your father and, and, and feeling um, left out in, in that regard, um, it, it sounds like that was maybe the more painful part than um than than being torn between two races culturally yes that was definitely the more painful part and i think you know as i got older what i realized and even as i was writing this novel i had to kind of deal with some issues that were probably buried for a long time and some of it is you know definitely anger toward him you know, for not trying to be a part of my life or trying harder, you know, my understanding is that my stepdad and my mom, they just didn't see a place for him. One, because, you know, he's married and he has his own family. And two, I have a stepdad now and they don't really need him in my life. Um, but I think he would have been a part of my life if, if they had allowed him to be, um, even if it had been this secret, <laughs> you know, sort of uh, relationship that his family didn't know about. Um, and yeah, so I won't, you know, <laughs> ever have that. That's That's got to be a weird one. I'd like to take you to lunch, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that so, one is, uh, it's complicated, and it's, it's also, you know, me having to deal with not being angry or bitter because of, the, you know, these decisions that were made that I had no control over, but how they impacted my life. So you decide to write the book and and you come up with this story that you know in in several ways mirrors your own and mm -hmm. as you're as you're writing it um was it cathartic or or was it just a a painful exercise I think it was cathartic to get, you know, some of these thoughts down on paper because, you know, like there's one there's one passage where I kind of go into, well, what, what does it mean to have a father? Because it wasn't something I ever really sat down and thought about deeply. You know, it was something that I wished for growing up, um, you know, and then it also made me think about, well, would I have become a different person? Would my relationships with men have been different had I grown up with a father figure, you know, and having that relationship? 
So it did have me, you know, dig deeper and, and explore some issues that, you know, like I said, I'd buried, I think. Um, but there were parts that were also painful because the real version, you know, in real life, my real father did die from a terminal illness. He had brain cancer. Hmm. And, you know, when I found out about it, um, in, in real life, I met my real dad when I was um, an undergrad in Minnesota, and I turned uh, 18 and met him in New Orleans. My mom had a friend who ran into him, and the short version of the story is, you know, she called me in Minnesota, and, you know, they she told me about their conversation. She knew that I wanted to meet him, and so I called him when I was in Minnesota, and we had a long conversation, and I met him that Christmas when I went home. Um, and, you know, six months later, he, I found out a couple of months later that he had brain cancer and not even six months later he died. Wow. And so I, I do wish in hindsight that I had been braver. The character in the book is much braver than I was. I didn't go to his funeral, even though I really wanted to, but my mom didn't want me to go because she felt like, you know, if they, if I go to this funeral, they'll see you and they'll know you're his daughter because she felt like I looked so much like him that it would be obvious. Um, so, you know, I didn't go to the funeral and in hindsight, I just, I wish I had. Um, so I will say that the character in the book is a lot braver than, than I was aren't, aren't in real life. are all characters in books braver than we are? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice yeah. to have the freedom that characters in books have? Um, yeah. But let I, I want to ask a little bit more about the uh, about the writing process for you. Mm-hmm. Um, when you get this, now you've got this book done and it's out, and I understand you're working on another book. Mm-hmm. Is it is is the next book influenced by your life, or are are you? expanding outward and and coming up with all new characters and and inventing the wheel this time. Yes. So the next one will be expanding out and looking at all new characters. Um, And and it's very rough. And and in the very early, very beginning stages, I have a rough outline and I've written just a couple of chapters, but I think where I want to go next is, um, you know, women who have been divorced, which that I can relate to, but I think looking more at people who suffer from mental illness is where I want to go next. Hmm. Not because I have one or think I have one, but because I, I know too many people who do and the stigma that's attached to it. Um, and so I, I want to explore, I want to explore that world a little bit more. So lots of research to do on that, but that's where I want to go next. Now, when did or or does the book uh, get officially released? Um, the wool over their eyes. Yes. Okay, so that it, it's released. It was just released last month on Amazon. dot okay. com. Yes. Okay. Um, when did you finish the book? Because there's some lag time mm-hmm. between finishing the book and editing the book, and then the publishing yeah. process and all of that. And and mm-hmm. what I'm getting at is. Did you have an opportunity to work on and finish the book during the the pandemic when so many of us spent a lot more time at home? (laughs) No, no, I was working like crazy, unfortunately, for my real job (laughs) since the pandemic had started. Um, 
I actually finished it a year ago, and I spent at least, I don't know, six or seven months trying to get an agent. And that whole process, I don't know how familiar you are with it, um, well, first, just doing a research to figure out which agents, you know, do they, <laughs> are they interested stories. in this genre? Go ahead. I've heard stories. It's tough. Yeah, it's really tough. And I had this whole list after I did all this research. And I had three agents who expressed interest, um, you know, read, actually read the, the manuscript and two of them were kind enough to give me feedback, which I really appreciated. Um, and I actually incorporated their feedback and mo really a lot of it was positive, but they, they did give me input on what I could do to make it better. Um, and then I did this class through the writing workshops of Dallas, um, and had some beta reader readers basically in that class give me input. So while it was done, yeah, I did go back and refine and tweak, um, some sections of the book. Um, and I did have a developmental editor who I worked with, John Payne, who was really instrumental in helping me shape it and develop it because it was very, very overwhelming. Like I went into it thinking it would be, oh, I've read, you know, thousands of books probably. I can, this is, I know the flow and how it should go. But it was, it was really, it got unwieldy very quickly, um, especially when you start making changes here and there and, and you know, trying to be consistent Um so I did finish it over a year ago, but then it was the process of getting, trying to get an agent. And then when that didn't work out, um, I talked with my editor about self-publishing. Um, and so that was the route we decided to go because I didn't want to let not having an agent hold me back. Now that the book is out, what kind of feedback are you getting? It's been all positive so far. And, and this is not just for my friends. So <laughs> I, I am relieved uh, because it felt really vulnerable to release it um, because, you know, even the best books that I've ever read, um, I don't know, like Cynthia Bond wrote this book called Ruby and I thought it was just amazing. I mean, it was on the level of Toni Morrison in my opinion and she's one of, you know, I've always admired her. Um, even her book had some negative reviews and I just thought, you know, you just have to be prepared for that. And ready for that. It's a subjective process in terms of giving feedback, you know, on a book. It may not always, the story may not always resonate with everybody. Um, but so far, it's all been positive. Well, that's great. Uh, do you think now that this, uh, that this book is out, um, obviously, as challenging as the process was, um, it, it didn't scare you from starting another book. So... <laughs> So I, I'm I'm wondering, do you feel, um, you know, maybe a little better positioned to move forward into another book? Yes, I definitely do. And because of the feedback that I got from my editor going into this, I mean, he's definitely encouraged me to keep to keep writing. Um, you know, he believes I have a talent and I mean, I believe I do too, not to be, you know, bragging on myself, but you know, we all have our gifts and I, I think writing is certainly a gift that I've been blessed with and I do want to be able to use it and, you know, continue to develop it. Um, so that, that's my plan going forward is to use this, this one talent that I know I have. <laughs> well, this is, um, 
in my opinion, a, a great beginning. I mean, this is your debut novel. It's uh, it's an interesting story. It has uh, a lot of interesting moving parts. Um, do you? We're getting close to the end of the time, and and I want to make sure, as I do with all my guests, Dion, to mm-hmm. um, let you share with listeners where they can find out more about you and your work going forward. Do you have a website yet? I do. I do. My website is dion-martin.com, so D-I-O-N-E-Martin.com. That's my website. Well, that sounds great, and and I appreciate you spending time with me today to talk about this, uh, about your new book, and I wish you uh, great success with it. Well, thank you. It was great talking with you. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. You too. That was debut uh, novelist Dion Martin, and the book is uh, called The Wool Over Their Eyes. It is the story of a biracial woman struggling to find love, family, and faith in the shadow of lies. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program. Wash my hands I don't touch my face at home shelter in place social distance don't go to work I wear a mask and gloves stay away from church I avoid old folks and should I sneeze I do it in my elbow or up my sleeve. Six feet apart, that is the rule. And I pray for the day the kids can go back to school. I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD. I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors, and I'm sick of what I see. Two more weeks of quarantine will be the death of me. me. I risk a trip. TV and a few things more but when I get there all I can find is 16 honey buns and some mad dog wine I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down.
I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck up. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development cooperation with other experts worldwide and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination. Freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the Bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. 
Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen... We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Right, so now, in order for you to understand what I'm going to do next, I have to go way back and speak about my great-grandfather, whom we traced back to Marie Antoinette. As a matter of fact, my great-grandmother traced him back there a couple of times. <laughs> He was partly responsible for the birth of my grandfather. He thought. <laughs> my grandfather was born in Denmark. He was Danish after his mother and Swedish after a friend of his father's. <laughs> he was one of the great inventors of his time. He invented the burglar alarm, which unfortunately was stolen from him. <laughs> He was a brilliant man. He was, among other things, a PhD. Just a. F- <laughs> so was his wife. However, besides being a brilliant, f- he also was a great chemist. He was the one who invented the cure for which there was no disease in the <laughs> Unfortunately, his wife later caught the cure and died. <laughs> he was a strange personality. He always experimented with something. Once he... Uh, He crossed an Idaho potato with a sponge. (laughs) Imagine that silly idea. It tasted horrible. (laughs) But it sure held a lot of gravy. (laughs) 
I think his greatest invention was a soft drink, which he called Four Up. <laughs> but it wasn't successful at all. So he invented Five Up. But still it didn't click, you know. Then came Six Up. But still nobody liked it. So he gave up and died heartbroken a couple of weeks later. But little did he know how close he came. <laughs> Then I was born, and when that happened, my parents were, well, they were not poor, but they didn't have any money. <laughs> so I was actually born at home. And when my mother saw me, she was taken to the hospital. <laughs> One day, when I was four years old, my father came home. And he found me in the living room in front of a roaring fire, which made him very angry because we didn't have a fireplace. <laughs> there I sat, here my father stood, burning up. He pointed at me, see, my father was left-handed. He always pointed this way. I was sitting on the other side. So my father said, Borger. He didn't know my first name. <laughs> See, in my father's family, we had a little trouble up here. In the head. My father was all right, but his two brothers, my male uncles. <laughs> you know, in Denmark, we always distinguish, you know... I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that we have three sexes over there. <laughs> Male, female, and convertible. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I was supposed to have been back to Denmark this summer. But I ain't going. Once I made up my mind what I was going to be, and that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> what I meant to tell you before was, and this is not a joke, this is really a fact, that two weeks ago, we celebrated my uncle's 103rd birthday. Isn't that something? Thank you very much. 103rd birthday. Unfortunately, he wasn't present. <laughs> How could he be? He died when he was 29. <laughs> but what I meant to say was that he was the one who went crazy. And his mother used to say that he went crazy because he never got the woman he loved. And that's a lot of nonsense because his brother went just as crazy. <laughs> and he got her. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. 
Are we pleasing? 
Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 